Have an idea for a podcast or a live talk show? Call 901-800-7608 or email info at theoamnetwork.com today and pitch your show. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. Theoamnetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. As you know, The Permanent Record is back after a little bit of a hiatus, and we've marked our return with a special two-part series featuring interviews with Emily Bazelon and Nora Jackson. We hope you've already listened to my interview with Emily in our most recent episode. It sets the stage for this interview with Nora Jackson. It's been a little more than three years since Nora was released from prison after having her conviction overturned. Nora's story is featured in Charged, the new movement to transform American prosecution and end mass incarceration, a new book by Emily Bazelon about the power of elected prosecutors. Nora was in town for a Just City event in support of the book, and she graciously sat down with me in the OAM Network Studio at Crosstown Concourse. Nora Jackson, thanks so much for joining us on the Permanent Record. Permanent Record, it's good to see you uh, in Memphis. Thank you so much for having me. So you were here, uh, you are here, uh, and did an event for us. We thank you very much for for that last night with Emily Bazelon, author of uh, the new book Charged, and it is about the power of elected prosecutors. And uh, you know a thing or two about that. Yes. Um, most folks listening is, are probably familiar with your case, but I would, I know I am not familiar with you. Uh, so tell us a little bit about Nora Jackson today. What what are you up to? Um, so I'm 32 years old. I'm living in Brooklyn. Um, I just finished my first semester of college. Congratulations. Uh, thank you so much. I was going for a 4.0. I won't toot my own horn, but <laughs> I got rather close. Excellent. Um, I will continue that um, within, in the fall semester. Um, I'm also doing some social and criminal justice advocacy work as it kind of comes my way. There's a great network of exonerees there. Um, the Innocence Project is currently representing me, which I'm very grateful for. Um, and I recently started my own nonprofit with a woman named Sarah Polt. Um, it's kind of based off of my experience in yeah. prison and my experience outside of prison in the struggles that I faced upon release and kind of there was just like a need um, for guidance and it wasn't there. And I was able to get through prison through mentorship and guidance on the outside. And so I wanted to see people. I knew that I had an amazing um, group of resources that other people didn't have. And so I wanted to help provide that to them. We see this so, so often. We've had people on this podcast who, who do that kind of work. Um, and, and there are people who have been on the inside and I, and I guess I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about as someone who's also been on the inside, why, why is there this, um, just seem seeming like burning desire, burning passion for people to, 
not leave prison behind and never look back or talk to anyone who's ever been in prison again, but to actually go back to those folks who you left behind and, and help them? What is it? I guess it's all based on your like own personal experience, but I will say, you know, there's no place like prison in the whole wide world. And I, and I, I don't say that with a, a lot of love and admiration, um, but it's just a feeling of being totally helpless. I have like absolutely helpless. It's a world within a world. You're in there. Everybody else is completely shut out. But some of the things that are done and said, whether to you personally or that you witness, they stay with you. I mean, I don't know how they couldn't. And in that experience, a lot of things that go on and a lot of the ramifications behind incarceration are absolutely avoidable, like very simply avoidable. And it's just about having the help and the resources and the fact that I feel like the only way you can understand that is kind of transitioning from the outside in, from the inside to the outside. And it's interesting because a lot of people that kind of set the tone and make these laws and make the rules are people that have never walked inside of a jail cell, never even toured a prison. And it's, you know, there's a big problem. And I feel like the people who have been affected by the problem are the only way there can be an adequate solution. And so I think that's where that comes from. If you could change one thing about life on the inside of a prison, um, just set aside guilt, innocence and all that. If someone's in prison and being treated the way people are treated today in prisons, what is the what's the first thing that you would change about how how uh, people are treated in prison? The guards. Um, definitely the guards. Um, I think that it is really, really imp- I've had some wonderful guards. Do not get me wrong. Um, but I think as a whole. People, you know, it's a job and like any other job, you would have have to have a certain skill set and training for it. And I feel like that does not exist inside of prisons. If you look at prisons in foreign countries, like it's, I, I can't remember the, what, what country that was. If it's, I don't, I don't know, Norway, Sweden, it's somewhere where it's just amazing. Like right. what the, the training that the guards have to go through. Um, it's, you're not there to be judged. You've already been judged. Right. You've already been sentenced. Yeah, and really, technically, if you look at the black and white on paper of what prison is supposed to represent versus what actually happens in there, it's like beating a dead horse. Um, also, the education, I guess I would say, too. But I think a lot of it has to do with the infrastructure of the prison and the way that it's ran. I think education is important. And in in the South, they're starting to kind of mil- militarize prisons and People are already, I mean, it just causes so many problems like PSD. There's like, you know, um, a heightened level of violence and violent write-ups. And it's interesting because people will change the statistics to make it look like what they're doing is working, but it's not. I mean, when I first went into prison, there were four different vocational classes, two GED courses. By the time I walked out the doors, there was only a 14-seat cosmetology class. Wow. So it was shrinking. Yes. The program. Dramatically. And you talked about this at the event we had last night about the difference between jail and prison. It's something that when I'm speaking in the community, I have to explain, you know, a lot of people just conflate the two. But jail is where you are when you're awaiting the disposition of your case and prisons where you go if you're found guilty and sentenced to time. And so what are the differences, though, that that (laughs) you experienced between jail and prison? I actually had this conversation with a 12 year old two weeks ago, and it was very (laughs) interesting that he kind of, you know, was asking this and. You know, I was explaining it to him very, very simplistically. The only thing that he had was that he had prison confused with jail and jail confused with prison. But I will say this. In jail, it's technically a holding facility, and that's exactly what it is. Like, just think of cattle, um, you know, or like like veal maybe. I don't know. It's You're sitting there 
and it's like it's dark and it's lonely. There's a huge turnaround of people. You don't even have access. For example, um, one of my support system, like Ansley used to send me books, but she could only send me books that were paperback. I couldn't get hardback. I mean, just like simple, tiny things like that. So they make it just so hard to be attached to the outside world. In prison, you have access to volunteers. You have access to classes. You have access to a rec yard. Um, You can cook your own meals. There is just a sense of like you, you, you have a routine and you have a day and you go about your day. You have a job where it is in jail. You have your meals, you have your recreation, you have everything in one room. Can you imagine living? There was that book room where the girl, I mean, totally different, but where the girl and the little boy were confined in the room and it was the only world they knew. So in my experience, when I was sentenced, I didn't want to leave jail. I was so scared. it It was all I knew. And then when I got to prison, I was like, whoa. I remember calling Ainsley and saying, like, it's this is so weird. Like, just there was so much green and there was grass and you could walk outside and, you know, you could go to a separate place to eat your meals. And, you know, a cell is a toilet and your bed. I mean, everything that goes on there. Like, that's just imagine your whole house was one room. You know, it's like the tiniest studio you've ever seen in your life. Right. Whereas in prison, you it's the same concept and setup, but... You just feel like you have a purpose. You're working right. towards something. You're earning credits. You're going to classes. You don't feel like every like your days don't run into the next. You can separate Monday to Thursday to Sunday okay. based on different religious services right. or courses that are offered or things that you're going to eat. But not in jail. No. You were held at Jail East, what we call Jail East in Shelby County? Correct. For How? three and a half years. Three and a half years the first time and then... The when first your, time. When your case was sent back, you stayed there for another several months, right? Yes, six months. So so four years total. You, yes. You, you spent at Jaylee's. Um, and your case, you know, I guess famously, infamously was uh, you, you were convicted and then it was overturned by the Tennessee Supreme Court and uh, for a couple of reasons, uh, both having to do with what we would call prosecutorial misconduct. One was um, the failure of the prosecutor's office to turn over some evidence. The other was a comment uh, that the uh, prosecuting attorney, now District Attorney Amy Wyrick, made at the closing statement. Uh, and your case was uh, sent back for trial, and that's why you spent seven more months in the uh, in the jail in jailies waiting for the final disposition of your case. Um, I've heard you speak about this and and, and seen it uh, seen some writing uh, about. Uh, that experience of uh, the first trial and, and awaiting that trial and going through the trial. And um, I wonder if uh, you could talk a little bit about um, uh, what it meant to you to watch Amy Wyrick in particular uh, and the uh, behavior that she exhibited at your trial to watch her, her sort of be corrected a little bit uh, and to see your case um, reversed, you know, just what it what was your impression of her your experience of sitting in a courtroom with her um what what do you think we should know that we haven't heard from Nora Jackson about that um well i will say this when when the supreme court unanimously unanimously overturned and that's important because you only need 3 votes to get you know right. the overturn and it was 5 nothing and right? it was 5 right. yes it was unanimous and it was you know in an election year when Janice Holder was leaving was leaving the bench and, you know, it was very right. It was a what was considered to be kind of a right wing Supreme Court. And, you know, like one of the swing votes was leaving. So when the decision came down, 
I, I'm not going to say that I felt vindicated, but I had this moment of feeling like, okay, so I'm not crazy because I knew what Amy had done in the trial. The people that were sitting in the courtroom knew what Amy had done in the trial. But one of the things that I found really disappointing was I was not able to attend the appellate arguments in what was in Jackson in the district court, the criminal court of appeals. And that's the one appeal that you're guaranteed to have. Mm-hmm. And during oral. But you're ar- not guaranteed a right to be there. No, right? you're not guaranteed a right to be there. You literally have to purchase the disc of the audio right. if you want to hear it. And I remember getting the disc in the mail and going into a classroom in the prison and, you know, find, having to go to the chapel and get headphones. Like it was just all this stuff that we were all determined to listen to it. And so I had a law clerk right here with the right earbud and I was over here with the left. And. We knew before the decision came down that they were not going to be on our side because one of the judges literally made reference and was like, well, when you get to the Supreme Court, they are allowed. Now, let me go back and back that up a little bit. So there was video. I will say this. The media has been horrible to me, but at the same uh, kind of at the same time, like they kind of are the whole reason that I was successful in the appellate process because the courts and the law kind of tend to favor the prosecution. Um, yeah, the presumption is there once there's a conviction, and it's really difficult to overturn that. Yeah. You know, they always say you're innocent until proven guilty, <laughs> but my experience and anybody else that's been through it is that you're guilty until proven innocent. And I think that's really important for people to know. Uh, you know, we have all of this stuff with bail and it being unconstitutional, but that right there proves it. Um, so during these oral arguments and Jackson, they were trying, my lawyer, Valerie Corder, and so Valerie was there and she was arguing against Ross, I want to say Ross Dyer. Dyer. I can't remember. Yeah, it was Ross Dyer. Someone that was not present during the trial, was not a part of the original prosecution team. And he was sitting there arguing and saying that Amy did not do what we were saying she did. Amy stood up and said, just tell us where you were, Nora. That's all we're asking. You have on headphones, so I don't want to scream in your ear, but <laughs> that's you. what happened. Right. Not only did she say that, she also turned around and looked at me and gestured towards me. And any, you know, jurors are everyday people and our minds are naturally curious. So that is what they were left with. Like, okay, well, if she didn't do it, then why won't she tell us where she was? It's not as simple as that. I will say this. I did want to take the stand. And I will also say this. I do agree with Valerie that it was a good idea that I didn't. There was too much emotion involved. Yeah. This was not a person that was like, a random stranger from, you know, a a drunken night on Beal. This was my mother. So it was very personal. And it was also very personal with Amy. So, you know, there's a saying that, you know, you put your client on their stand and I'll get them to say whatever I want them to. And Amy was attacking me. I mean, I'd never taken the stand and she was attacking me. So when this was done and this was said, I immediately got ready to jump out my chair. And before (laughs) I knew it, Valerie had pushed me down and she objected. Right. You cannot unring a bell. Right. It doesn't matter that the... Chris Kraft gave curative instructions to the jury. So I'm saying all this to lead up to when we get to the to the criminal court of appeals, they're like, we have it. So Ross Dyer is arguing that is not how it was said. That is not what she did. That was not the intention. You know, it was all to tie in the Steve Jones PowerPoint. And so Valerie was made reference and she was like, well, we have it. We can show you. And the response of the criminal court in Jackson was, we can't look at that. We're not allowed to look at media sources or out, you know, outside things. But when you get to the Supreme Court, they can. So I mean, what I mean, that right there sounds like okay, rubber stamp, uh, we're done with you, but we'll send you on your way and maybe they'll listen to you. Right. So 18 months later, it's that's how long it took. Um I was denied and then you file something called a rule 11, mm-hmm. which is interesting because I didn't know you don't know these things unless you act they, they're applying to your everyday life. <laughs> so that is where you ask for permission right, to, to appeal. Right. It's and not was, a guaranteed 
appeal at this point. It's a shot in the dark. I mean, I, I can't tell you anyone else that I know personally, you know, I can tell you, I can cite cases, but personally that I was incarcerated with that, that had an, a successful rule 11. Um, and so it comes down and they want to hear more. And so they go to do oral arguments on it and they are allowed to show the video. And that is where the media is crucial. So if not for that, I saw that in this world of appeals and lawyers and prosecutors that they kind of have reasonable doubt on their side. So it's if we couldn't prove it and we couldn't show it, then it basically didn't happen. And they could explain away anything they did. I mean, just like they tried to explain away the statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after seeing that, it was very interesting. You know, I, I one of the things that I was told all along the way from other people was like, do not get your hopes up. See, hope is like a very important part of incarceration. Yeah, but it's not like, too much of it, maybe. Exactly. <laughs> it's like baking a cake. You can't have too much and you cannot have too little. You have right. to have just the right amount to sustain yourself through it. And so when... I found out that they asked to see the video again, one of the judges. I just like that. Hope. How did you find that out? M- one of my lawyers told okay. me. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And they asked to see the video again. And I'll never. F- have I ever told you the story <laughs> about how I found out that I had won the appeal? I don't know if I've heard that story. Okay. So, so I, this is, this is, let's set the stage. This is finding out about the ruling of the Tennessee Supreme Court, right? Correct. So the rule 11, you know, was successful. They allowed us to submit an appeal. Valerie went and did oral arguments on it. After oral arguments, you know, she kind of gave me a synopsis of what happened, told me they had asked to see the video again. And then it was just white noise. It was a waiting game. For how long? Um, I don't know. I want to say 13 or 14 months. Wow. Okay. So then how did you find out? Actually, yeah, no, it wasn't, it, it took longer for the denial of the criminal court appeal than that. So the way I found out was, it was very interesting. Um, I was sitting on my toilet in my cell. <laughs> um, everybody else had gone to what we call the chow hall. And I was in um, D South, which was the pause program unit. So this was the one part of the prison. There was four housing units. And this is the one that stood on its own. It was its own separate entity because it had kind of like a courtyard for the dogs, the dog trainer. That's a that's a position in there. You can work in the pause program yes. where they train dogs to be service animals. And I, I kind of loved that. It was very humanizing. Sure. And I didn't really necessarily want like having the dog in my cell with me, but I liked having access to the dogs living in this housing unit. It was also like a can imagine like having a dog for six weeks and then having to give it away. Yeah, it's um, rough. So, yeah, it is. So um, I was watching the TV. We always watch stuff on closed caption. Um, in fact, I still do that. Um, so because you could get in trouble for the sound level being too high, the air condition, the, we didn't have air conditioning in that prison for a very long time. And so the doors had holes in them for ventilation purposes. So uh-huh. the sound would carry. So we all had to listen to our TVs either with these like big headphones like we have on now, uh-huh. or you could watch it closed oh, caption. Right, right. So the closed caption was on and I was sitting on the toilet and the, the five o'clock news is on. And I just see my name go across the bottom of the screen and it said <laughs> Nora Jackson. And I was like, Oh no, like what, what, what now? now? <laughs> and then I see, you know, sometimes the closed caption like misses stuff, you know? And so all I saw was like Nora Jackson. And then I saw appeal and I was like, wait, what? So then the title for Channel 5 comes on. It was like, Nora Jackson is granted new trial. And I was like, holy shit. And so, like, it was so weird. And, you know, if it wasn't such a wonderful moment, I would probably be embarrassed to tell that story. But it's just the truth of what happened and exactly what was going on. 
So I go to the door and I start screaming and everybody's gone. It was There's nobody in there. No, it was it was it was chef salad that night in the chow hall. So of course everybody was big gone. Night. Big night. Right. And so the officer was outside letting the dogs run and I'm just like screaming like a lunatic and I'm like somebody let me out of here like you know at the back and like they're like what is going on? And then I get out and like I'm calling people on the phone and it's like, of course, like two people don't answer. And then finally I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. And so nobody's there and I'm so excited. And I like want to share this news with somebody. And I go to the end of the breezeway waiting for Mm -hmm. everybody to come back. And one of my friends came and I was like, what is like the greatest thing that could ever happen right now? (laughs) And they're like, we get a new commissioner. And I was like, (laughs) okay, so second greatest thing. And I told him and we cried and we laughed and we hugged. And I mean, it was amazing. It was a beautiful thing. And the thing is, it wasn't just my thing. Like, because yeah, a win for me it. was a win sure. for everybody to sure. see some type of relief in any court. How How is that, what that moment meant? I mean, in that moment, it meant sharing something with your friends. It meant um, a lot of things. It meant, it, it meant some different kind of hope. Uh, what is it, how has it changed? What that moment, what what your your conviction being overturned means to you? I mean, obviously, it was still a long road to get out. But what does it mean to you now? Like, is it different? Yes. When I, I, I was very naive, I was very naive in that moment. I'm glad I had that moment with my friends. But um, every time I thought that I had really just learned something, I found out later on down the road that I did not know as much as I thought I did. I think that that's kind of like life, right? <laughs> it is, except this is like a way more dangerous version Very, of it. Yeah. extremely, yeah. So um, in that moment, you know, I didn't really know what the process entailed. It was kind of like, oh, yay, I get a new trial. And even though like I kind of knew that, you know, I waited three and a half years for the other one, I was thinking, you know, when Valerie came and she brought me the appeal and it was a very like the, like the opinion issued by the Supreme Court was very interesting. There were some footnotes and some kind of like directives like, well, I guess at the, you know, at the risk of sounding redundant, they were directed towards the trial judge and the prosecutor about the do's and don'ts and what they did wrong. Basically, my whole trial consisted of 404B, which um, I will break that down a little bit, but it's like it had absolutely nothing to do with the charge. So basically, it was character assassination for— What they could talk about. Right. right. So the Supreme Court told them, you know, they issued, you know, kind of told them very be be cautious with that because it's really not relevant. Um, And so that was kind of their whole entire case. So I'm thinking like, okay, we're going to go back. I'm going to go to trial. We're going to get vindicated. Not only am I going to get out, you know, um, Amy will be held accountable. That was huge for me. And second, you know, now they've been made aware and they've kind of been set out and they won't do this to other people. But thirdly, the most important is we are going to find a murderer. You know, as long as I'm convicted, they're, you know, they're not looking for anybody else. And that was huge for me. Huge. Interesting. Um, and something that a lot of folks probably don't think about. Tell us more. Uh, last night you had this amazing group of uh, friends uh, with you at the event. And um, it was just a, almost like a miniature celebration going on. Uh, and I want to know how important those folks, one of whom is here with us uh, in the studio, but I want to know how important and what, what role those folks have played in your life and why it's so important in the last, uh, two. I guess, it's three years now since you should three. you know? yeah. Three on the seventh. Well... I mean, I could start with Ansley. I mean, that would be easy. She's she's right here. I would not be sitting in this chair if it wasn't for Ansley and her husband, Nilzeric. This This predates anything I went through. This is just as a 12 and 13-year-old girl. You know, um, Ansley has been a coach, a cheerleader, a teacher, 
a supporter. Um, I used to always joke and say I wanted to be like her when I grew up. Um, but I will say this from, from day one, um, I didn't think that, you know, everybody's always like, you know, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that if I was you. And I will just say this. You don't know what you can do until you absolutely have to do it. Um, But through court dates and Ansley knew my mom. Ansley knew me. So throughout the trial, I think one of the hardest things for me is that they were completely assassinating the relationship that my mom and I had um, and taking that last thing away from me. Um, They were misconstruing the way things were. My mom and I were very close. Um, We raised each other. Um, Did we do everything right? Probably not. But I mean, just just the way that they presented things and how my mom's sisters came in from the outside and they painted this picture that was not real. And Ansley was there as the picture was painted. But also Ansley lived in real time with me. Mm -hmm. I dated her son from eighth um, going up to the 11th grade. So, I mean, she was there for all of it, you know. The bat, like, like, you know, the sneaking out, um, you know, the parties, the birthdays, the barbecues, the family dinners. I mean, she was there. So it was very crucial to have her along that way because she always kind of reminded me of like who I was and that I wasn't that person yeah. that they were making me out to be. And she also kind of always guided me into the person she knew I was capable of being. So that was important. So I had Ansley always kind of there for me on the outside and the other people that were there were Miss Pat, who yeah. runs Webs, Women Empowered to Become Self-Sufficient, which is a prison ministry on the inside, and Miss Mindy and Nicole and Denise Fruchel. And they kind of guided me on the inside. Yeah. So I kind of had this like A team of like these strong, powerful women. Um, and I would have been a crazy person without them. I just, I don't think words can ever do justice to the role that they played into me sitting in this chair and not just sitting in this chair, but moving to New York and going to college and kind of just like walking out of this horrible experience. I hate, I, I sometimes hate to say this, but a better person, yeah. you know, that, I think that whole experience was, des- was designed and kind of prison as a whole to just kind of beat you down. Yeah. And if anything, like, I don't know, we used to call my grandmother the Phoenix because she would rise from the <laughs> ashes all the time. And if anything, it just kind of lit a fire under me and gave me a determination you know, yeah, it's wow. like they let me into a world that, you know, you're not meant to walk away from and talk about. And you did. And I'm going to scream it from the rooftops for sure. That's great. That's great. Um, well, okay. So you're headed back to Brooklyn. I guess you're going back to school. What are you studying anyway? Uh, public affairs. Public affairs. And where? And it's a SUNY. I mean, it's a SUNY college. It's called SUNY Empire. So, you know, we have CUNY and we have SUNY, the state yeah, of yeah. New York universities in mm-hmm. the city. I'm, I might end up transferring to Hunter or to Brooklyn College. I'm not sure, but I wanted to do this on my own and earn my way. And so um, I was very hesitant and I was getting so caught up on the ACT and the SAT and all of that. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to start at the bottom and move my way up. So that's what I'm doing. Excellent. Excellent. And I guess we should, we should talk just a little bit about the whole reason uh, that, that you're here, I guess, is Emily Bazelon's book. Uh, but I don't want to talk about her book. We talked to her last night about her book. I want to talk, uh, last night you, you called her a friend or maybe I started that, but um, you, uh, she is your friend and you relayed uh, that to the, to the crowd last night. And I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about Emily. Emily is definitely a friend. Emily is someone that came and, you know, sat on my couch and helped me navigate, you know, getting health insurance in New York. (laughs) And she's somebody that, you know, she doesn't live in New York. I heard that she was referred to as a New York City reporter. (laughs) She was. Um, She is a New York Times magazine reporter 
very big difference. Yeah, yeah. And she lives in Connecticut. Right. So she has come from Connecticut several times and um, just doing what friends do, like supporting you through major life decisions. Um, she is very much a part of like, I consider the A team of like badass chicks, if I can say that, <laughs> that I, that I am lucky enough to have been surrounded with. Um, we toured a couple different schools and she, colleges. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And, um, she actually edited I, uh, my college essay. That's, that's a good editor to have. <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, no <laughs> wonder job. I got in. No, I'm just kidding. But she's, she's amazing. You yeah. know, she, it, it, her whole family is amazing really, but I am so, so lucky and I, I made the right decision to share my story with her mm-hmm. and um, I cannot read the book. I have had so many people ask me for the book <laughs> and I have taken it to them and actually in a two hour car ride, everybody was talking about the book and I just kind of flipped through it and wanted to read the epilogue because she told me I'm actually going to include an excerpt from your college essay Oh, wow. In the epilogue. So it's that, that part of that essay is in the epilogue of the book. So I was flipping through and reading it. And it was like, I was like, oh my God, if someone like opened up my brain, I had to close it. I was crying. Yeah. And I heard Nina Morrison and like other people say that about it. And I was like, you know, okay, whatever. But when you can make somebody cry about the things that they've said and your observations of them, Emily sees me. And it's not just me. She sees people and she sees situations. Mm. And maybe that's why some people have all of these adverse reactions to the sum of the stuff that she's writing. (laughs) Maybe we don't like what we see, but she is painting a very accurate picture of the way things are, but also the way things could be. Yeah, yeah, that's right. She she closes the book with an appendix of... uh, of ways that we can we can make the criminal justice system better, ways that prosecutors can make the criminal justice system better. She does a good job of, of that too, seeing how things could be. Well, Nora Jackson, thanks. Uh, we're just about out of time. Thanks for joining us and sharing just a, a little bit of your story, uh, your inspiring story. And I, we wish you the best of luck. You're always welcome back here at uh, Just City and the Permanent Record. Uh, good luck to you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Josh. That was Nora Jackson in conversation and on the permanent record. Special thanks to Nora for joining us during her visit to Memphis. As always, thanks to Gil and Carla Worth and the OAM Network for hosting us and for for providing first-class podcast support. Check out all their great shows at theoamnetwork.com. Special thanks to Jeff Hewlett for a brand new version of our theme song, She Got Gone. That song and many other Jeff Hewlett originals are available now on Jeff's newest album, Around These Parts. Look for Jeff and his album at live music venues around town or check him out on Spotify where you can also subscribe to this podcast. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at justcity901. Make sure you're subscribing to The Permanent Record on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating, leave us a review. It helps us build our audience. In a Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.